What do you do when you want to distract from a decade of cuts affecting educational outcomes? Well, if you're a Tory MP, the answer is simple. You blame anti-racist activists blathering on about white privilege. You distract from the class inequalities you have built up in the country. And in the meantime, you stoke a culture war. It's just too perfect. They couldn't resist. I'll be talking to Dahlia Gabriel tonight about that report from the Education Committee on the Underachievement of White Working Class Boys. Dahlia, how are you doing this evening? I'm good. I'm exhausted today. I think I went too hard in my weightlifting gym stuff today um, because I am exhausted. But um, I'm sure I'll perk up by my rage at the latest trotting out of this uh, same story we've heard multiple times for the past several decades, basically, which is that black and brown people are to blame for the class war. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed to hear about your your exercise this morning. I've actually, I said white working class boys, it should be all white working class children. I don't think the report made a distinction based on gender. Tonight, we'll also be talking, uh, we've got a story on climate change. The government has a good talk. How do they walk? Also, a police officer convicted of manslaughter. That was a police officer. He was he was on duty when he killed the person. This is actually very, very rare. Um, first time in 35 years, in fact. We will finish the show with the embarrassing song, British School Children Are Being Told to Sing on One Britain, One Nation Day, which, if you weren't aware, is this Friday. We're all very excited at Navara Media. The Education Committee has released a report on the underachievement of white working class children in British schools. The report lays out a number of statistics as to how attainment differs among low income students according to ethnicity. So we're going to get some of the some of the statistics they sort of begin the report with um, where this disparity has been identified. So first of all, when it comes to four to five year olds on free school meals, they look at how different groups, different ethnic groups within the free school meal category fare on that basis. Um, so you can see here that 53% of white British children on free school meals meet their development goals by age four to five, which is below um, black Caribbean and black African students on free school meals and Indian and Chinese students on free school meals. It's above Gypsy Roma students on free school meals. That trend, um, which has been identified there, continues up into GCSEs. Um, so the attainment eight scores are the sum of grades achieved in different subjects. So GCSEs are now awarded on a one to nine scale, not on, not on A to E. So here we can get up the, the, st the statistics highlighted in the report. Um, so they show that the scores, again, of white British children on free school meals are below those of black Caribbean, black African, Indian and Chinese, and only above those of Gypsy Roma. I think also there is Irish traveller in that group scoring below white British children on free school meals. Finally, the same disparity when it comes to access to higher education. Here you can see the proportion of students on free school meals starting higher education by age 19 in 2018 to 2019. Among white British children on free school meals, it's 16%. Among black Caribbean children on free school meals, 31%. Black African, 59%. And Chinese, 72%. Now, you'll have noticed none of those lists I showed you there are exhaustive. Um, these are the stats that I've sort of lifted from their report. So they haven't always um, highlighted the results of, of groups not mentioned there. So, for example, Pakistani children aren't um, mentioned in that particular summary of the disparities. Um, Robert Halfen is the Tory MP who chairs 
the committee. He told the BBC what he thinks explains the relative underperformance of white working class students in Britain. There are a number of reasons why this is happening. It's partly due to place. Often money and policy is all thrown at the big cities and towns where many of uh, white working class uh, pupils live um, are often left behind and neglected. There is family disengagement from the education uh, curriculum, the multi-generational uh, disadvantage, there's lack of care about uh, these students who are not going to uh, university. There's a host of reasons that this is going on, but there's also muddled and lazy thinking because the stock answer to this is, is, is people say it's because of poverty. But if it was down to poverty, we would not have most other ethnic groups who are also disadvantaged or also on free school meals performing much better in terms of their educational outcomes. So he mentioned a couple of explanations there for this disparity they've identified. Um, the evidence points to two key areas, according to MPs, um, which they believe are central to understanding relative underperformance of disadvantaged white pupils. Now, these fall under two categories, place and culture. So they write place-based disparities, not just relating to income deprivation, but also poor infrastructure, struggling job markets and lack of opportunity and multi-generational poverty and unemployment are more likely to affect disadvantaged white pupils due to the distribution of ethnic diversity in the country. Tackling these requires highly tailored local solutions. Cultural factors, including family structure, experience of education and access to community assets, including places of worship, youth groups and other social organisations, may also disproportionately impact attainment for disadvantaged white pupils. Now, we are going to go through some more quotes and data from this report. Dahlia, first, I want your, your initial reaction to the report. When it comes to those two groups of, 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 of explanations, place and culture in terms of, and the culture there seems to be you know, access to social institutions, doesn't seem that reactionary, but the whole framing of the report is pretty off potentially. Well, what's your take? This is one of uh, many reports that have been published, especially using this particular kind of data set um, that have been, or this kind of frame, you, the, the extraction of these particular data points um, over a period of time um, that have been published over the years to make the exact same point. Uh, and the commissioning of the, these kinds of reports is not just limited to the Conservative government. We also saw many similar reports uh, under new labor. And, you know, what we see here essentially is the extrapolation of a very specific data set um, that has been selected precisely because of what can be incorrectly extrapolated from it. And so, so why do I say that it's selective? Well, it's selective because it boils down the entirety of a child or a young person's experience in education to particular metrics. So, what is missing here is the fact that, for example, as you're going to mention, um, not only is it that when you look outside of the free school meal data, actually there is a lot more disparity that is racialized against um, people of color, um, but also the fact that, you know, for example, black and brown children are much more likely to be excluded from school, which leads to sort of significant and damaging outcomes um, beyond school. It also doesn't capture the fact that these disparities in this particular category do not translate to disparities beyond education. So we see a racial attainment gap throughout 
university where you know students of color that enter the same university with the same grades um, and in the same course uh, achieve lower grades by the end of their degree than their than their white counterparts and also like not to mention the fact that this sort of supposed outperformance at school by black and brown children which is actually not something that can be extrapolated unproblematically from the data does not actually translate into, you know, the things that we would think that educational attainment achieves, which is, you know, more secure employment, more livable wages, uh, home ownership, savings, decent living conditions, etc. You know, ethnic minority workers in this country are 47% more likely to be on a zero hours contract. How, how does that happen when supposedly everyone's doing so incredibly well? Um, at school. And so when you look at these disparities holistically, which this report very deliberately does not do, then you cannot escape the fact that race and class are intimately tied together with those who are racialized outside of whiteness, experiencing very negative consequences as a result of that. And that being racialized outside of whiteness has a tendency to sort of generate very particular material conditions. So what I'm saying is that, you know, is it true that white children on free school meals um, in this particular category are faring poorly um, in comparison to their other counterparts? Yes, clearly the data shows that. Does that tell us that much about the relationship between race and class in this country? No, it doesn't. And most importantly, are the conservatives or even new labor the ones who, you know, have the answers to deal with what is essentially a class disparity, um, as you're going to kind of outline later, where we see that the, the, the real inequities and the real huge gaps are between white children on free school meals and white children who are not on free school meals. So, of course, the Tories aren't the ones to, to actually address that, especially when they are the ones who have defunded the very provision of free school meals and, you know, they oversee and endorse a two-tier education system where those who can pay for it are given access to training and resources and preparation and, you know, care and all those kind of things that a child needs to learn. Meanwhile, everyone else in the rest of the country is sort of fighting for the scraps. So there's many reasons why this is an exhausted trope, but we still have to um, expose why it's so limited anyway, even though it is exhausting. <laughs> Mm. I think your comment about this sort of encouraging people to fight for the scraps is very, very telling when it comes to this, because I, I take all your points about even within this group of children on free school meals, it might be the case that while white kids on free school meals perform worse on certain educational you know, tests or whatever, than people from other ethnic groups on free school meals, it could be that in other aspects of life, they are, um, they have privileges over those um, poor ethnic minority kids. The bigger issue for me, though, I, I completely take that on board. The bigger issue for me, though, is what this ignores, which is that for some reason, they've written a whole report, which is only comparing people within this group of children on free school meals, which, by the way, is only about 17% of the student population. That's because it's actually the it's really difficult to get on free school meals there are loads more kids in this country in poverty than are on free school meals it's a bit of a crude um, method for assessing poverty in any case but what i want to bring up for you now is instead of just comparing the attainment of children on free school meals according to ethnicity comparing that to the total number of students and the attainment they are achieving who are not on free school meals so let's get this up so when it comes to gypsy roma kids on free school meals 33% are meeting their four to five year development goals. 
not on free school meals, that's only 35%. So clearly that's a community incredibly disenfranchised. And regardless of whether or not you're, you're on free school meals, very difficult to achieve in education. Let's go on to white British. So here on free school meals, only 53% of children meet their development goals. Now that's a shocking statistic. It's quite right. There's, you know, that's the subject of debate as to how that can be improved. The comparison to me here, though, seems to be that white kids not on free school meals get 76% of them meeting those development goals. So, and this, this continues down um, through the ethnicity. So Pakistani kids on free school meals, 60% achieve those goals, 65% on 65% not on free school meals achieve those goals. And you can see um, that pattern throughout all of those groups. And I think this is the real key thing, because what you've got, the, the nature of, of this report is it's essentially said, look, only 53% of white British kids on free school meals are reaching the desired development goals at age four or five. Fine. Decent point. But then they say, if only white poor kids could score as highly as black poor kids, then that you know, then then the problem would be solved. Let's put all of the focus on this difference between two underprivileged groups. Instead of saying, it would have made much more sense for me to say, if only white kids on free school meals could score as highly as white kids who aren't on free school meals, which is 76%. So it's a much bigger difference. And I think what you see there is that actually class is the much bigger determinant of attainment in school. But for some reason, the Tory at the top of this select committee, by the way, the Labour MPs, you can see the minutes of the report, they tried to reject quite a lot of this. So this was driven by the Tories on that committee. They well, for obvious reasons, want to focus on the differences between student groups who were on free school meals instead of looking at what is the obvious explanation here for failure in school, which is which is class, and they don't want to talk about that. Most of the press around this has involved white privilege and the idea that well, the message being put out is that actually it's it's white kids who are doing the worst. I mean, this really kind of enforces that whole reverse racism idea, doesn't it? We can look now um, at the differences between, here again, we're looking at um, whether or not kids meet their development goals between the or by the ages of four and five. Here, actually, white British kids perform very, very well. So here you've got black kids and South Asian kids really underperforming white kids. And that could suggest, oh, that maybe there is um, a problem of, of racism in schools. But no, they've completely ignored all of that. We're only going to look at the 17% of people in schools who are on free school meals and then make out that the whole problem is race. It's odd um, to say the least. Well, it's not odd, it's cynical. Um, as I said, most of the headlines were about white privilege when it came to this report. They had a whole um, section on it um, about white privilege, they wrote. We are concerned that the phrase may be alienating to disadvantaged white communities and it may have contributed towards a systemic neglect of white people facing hardship who also need specific support. It also says white privilege also fails to acknowledge the damage caused by other forms of discrimination, including anti-Semitism and the marginalization of people from Gypsy, Roma and traveller backgrounds. Now, it's worth noting here the committee is chaired by a conservative who supports the police and crime bill, which is specifically targeting traveller communities. So it all rings a little bit hollow. They're saying, oh, actually, white privilege is it's not looking at the complexity, which is anti-traveller racism. You're promoting anti-traveller racism. They go on. The disadvantaged white pupils our inquiry focuses on do not have white privilege in the education system, and we are concerned about the impact that hearing terms like that presented as fact will have on those children. So 
I, I think they knew that all of the headlines coming out of this report, I mean, if you see you know, Andrew Neil's monologue on GB News, I saw that on Twitter, he's basically saying this report shows white privilege is a nonsense concept and it's to blame for white working class kids doing badly at school. Those are the headlines they wanted from this. Deeply, deeply cynical. Luckily, quite a lot of Labour politicians are seeing through this. To be fair to them, Zara Sultana um, tweeted, it wasn't the phrase white privilege that caused 750 plus youth centres to close since 2010. It was the Conservative Party. David Lammy, who's the shadow justice minister, said the term white privilege didn't cause the neglect of white working class pupils. A decade of conservative austerity in education, housing and youth services did, just as it destroyed the life chances of working class black and minority ethnic kids. Stop trying to divide us. And James O'Brien from LBC actually had a very good tweet about this. He wrote, when I started presenting phone-in shows, black children were often reported to be doing worst in school. Every single right-wing commentator was adamant that parents were entirely to blame. Funny that. I think that white privilege is not an entirely useful term. I think that, you know, speaking about whiteness as a technique, speaking about white supremacy and the relationship between that and the foundation and continuing existence of capitalism is much more effective um, and it's much more kind of reflective of what we're trying to talk about. But that's not the conversation that these guys are trying to have. So I think it's important to not kind of... Uh, lend credence to what these guys are trying to do by sort of getting into the nuances of the term white privilege. What they're trying to do is to create this un this idea of, you know, white people en masse um, are victimized by the kind of petty, petty demands and the kind of petty realities of black and brown people. Um, and, you know, I mean, as I've mentioned before, I'm not surprised um, at all by the fact that this has been used the, the very real issue of poverty and of, you know, class inequality in this country is being used instead to kind of fear monger and, and create kind of a moral panic around white privilege and the growth of anti-racism movements, you know. But also this, this technique of, you know, racializing work, the working class in way into segments that are, you know, materially and socially organized very differently from one another and most importantly, positioned in opposition to one another, you know, that's an even older technique. There's a centuries old technique. Um, and it's sort of the very reason why race is the global, very fine tuned system that it is today and why it is so entrenched. But this sort of particular iteration of it was, was most recently used, actually, um, if we sort of cast our minds back uh, in the discredited Sewell report, which was published not long after um, the Tories actually tried to cut free school meals, right? Um, which would have had disastrous impacts on all of the children represented in this data who are on free school meals, including, surprise, surprise, the white ones. Um, and that decision was reversed following, you know, a campaign by a black man who was raised working class, Marcus Rashford, who supports the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm sure pretty believes that, you know, white privilege and white supremacy exist. So clearly these things are not oppositional to one another, but actually go very much hand in hand with one another. But I think also when we're thinking about how we position ourselves in relation to this, I think it's really easy to feel very fatalistic about it and to be like, oh, my God, like, how can people believe this? Like, how can people look at everything that the Tories have done and every all these systemic things that have happened um, and be convinced that the very people who create when the very people who created this crisis turn around and say, you know, it's because of anti-racism, which is basically a proxy word for black and brown people. but that's, you know, 
this is an economic logic. You know, the reason it's so effective is because it's an economic logic that is so, as I said, it's centuries in the making. And, you know, if you think about how our world is so pervasively coded through racial means, um, it feels like it exists at sort of every layer of society. It's in order so that those very divisions and those very feelings of separateness can be mined on effectively in these particular moments. And that's a very, very complex and deep knot um, to undo. And when I say these moments, what I mean is it's quite easy to sort of brush this off as, you know, oh, it's a distraction. But I actually think of it much more as both a form of action and a form of reaction, um, which is to say um, that, you know, action because it's part of that material and social organizing of working classes into different and opposing existences. And, you know, it's essential to workforce discipline and it's essential to getting people invested in that the very system that disciplines them but it's also a form of reaction because you know we've just seen a very momentous summer where you know multiracial crowds took to the streets not just in metropolitan centers but in rural and suburban parts of the country demanding systemic change um with a real literacy in the relationship between race and capitalism in what they were saying um, and, you know, that's a kind of literacy that we haven't seen in this country in anti-racism movements um, since, you know, the 70s and 80s. And so this is essentially the state's way of trying to break that spirit and to kind of kick dust into our eyes in a, at a very moment where we have clarity. As disheartening as it can be to hear these stories and to think about how effective it might be, I think it's also important to think about how, trying to undo that knot is pushing a very heavy boulder up a very steep hill, but also that the investment of resources that this government is putting into this backlash is precisely because of the very power that has been exercised, which they recognize and to an extent are intimidated by. That's all very important. I mean, I, I suppose where I stand on the white privilege, thing, maybe you'll disagree with me, is that I think it can be useful. I mean, in a way, I feel like I have white privilege. I know, you know, my, my friends of of color, I notice, you know, they tell me about all the, the racisms they're subject to that I'm not, and it's such a relief that I'm not. So on one level, that that is definitely white privilege. At the same time, you know, if if someone is struggling, so if you've got a struggling white person, you say, well, at least you're white, at least you've got those benefits. It's a bit like telling you know, anyone who's struggling, someone who's a victim of racism in this country, well, at least you live in a democracy where you can vote. You know, everyone's got some kind of privilege unless you're the most unlucky person in the whole world. And so sometimes it's not the most helpful thing to sell to someone. Well, you've got this privilege, which I think people inevitably take as, well, does that mean I don't have any right to complain? Does that mean I can't struggle on my own behalf? Do you think I'm being unfair, Dahlia? Firstly, that's not what any serious anti-racist movement is invested in, like that kind of pitting, that kind of oppression Olympics. And I don't even think that the the development of the term white privilege was was designed in order to to meet those ends. I think that that idea that, you know, conversations around anti-racism or conversations even around white privilege are a way of pretending that the world exists in that binary where like if you're white then you know nothing can touch you um and if you're not then then that's otherwise that was never something that came from our side that was always a projection and a caricature that came from the other side at least if you're talking about sort of serious 
people who are involved in anti-racist organizing. And, you know, I use the Marcus Rashford example again, you know, Marcus Rashford, you know, primarily he's a footballer. I don't think that he's like sees himself as a full-time anti-racist activist, but in his conception of what it means for to be a supporter of Black Lives Matter and to understand why these kind of universal programs are really important for racial justice, he has done more for those white boys on free school meals than the Conservative Party have done in their entire tenure. And he's not even in the business of politics. Um, so I think that that kind of framing is very much not something that has come from movements. And it's not something from that's come from us. It's come from those who try to discredit us by sort of caricaturing um, the argument. Because as you mentioned, it is without question that whiteness operates in a particular way and does designate certain forms of protection. Um, but that was always the point, you know, when you think about the invention of whiteness as a legal category, um, it was literally to separate, you know, African slaves from white indentured laborers. Now, no one's saying that indentured laborers are having a great time, um, but, you know, they still were protected from that category of slavery. And that's the point. I think that's very well put. I mean, also, I mean, the, the argument, I think, the, the big argument we're making here, which is the simplest one, whether or not you think white privilege is a useful concept, it's got absolutely nothing to do with why we have shocking inequalities in education and why, why, why some kids are being completely neglected by the system. It has absolutely no relation whatsoever. And the reason the Tories are pretending it does is completely cynical. A police officer has been convicted of the manslaughter of the former professional footballer Dalian Atkinson. In 2016, PC Benjamin Monk of the West Mercy of Force fired a teaser at Atkinson, which he held down for 33 seconds. The standard deployment is five seconds. So he held down the taser for over six times um, the recommended period. Now, Monk also kicked Atkinson twice in the head. He did so with such force that Atkinson's blood was found on his police issue boots. The whole thing's incredibly distressing. Atkinson died from cardiac arrest, passing away within an hour of being tasered. His family expressed relief on hearing the verdict. We knew years ago about the terrible in injuries inflicted by PC Monk on Dalian, but we have been unable to talk about them due to the criminal process. We are hugely relieved that the whole world now knows the truth about how Dalian died. While it has been hard for us not to be able to talk about the details of Dalian's death, it has been even harder to sit through this trial and to hear PC Monk try to justify the force he used. On the night that Dalian died, he was vulnerable and unwell and he needed medical attention. Instead, he received violence and died with PC Monk's bootlace prints bruised on his forehead. We have been sickened to hear PC Monk try to minimalise the force he used on Dalian and exaggerate the threat that Dalian posed. Fortunately, the jury has seen through the lies and the pretense. We would like to thank the jury members for all their hard work and attention. So as was referenced in that statement, Dalian Atkinson came into contact with the police after experiencing an episode of poor mental health. We can go to the BBC for more details of, of what happened in, in 2016. So they report that the trial heard how the two officers were called to Mr Atkinson's father's house in Meadow Close in the early hours of 15th of August, where the sportsman had been acting erratically. Monk told the court he ran in fear after Mr Atkinson, who appeared to be having a mental health crisis, made death threats and smashed a glass door pane. 
The trial heard Monk had discharged his taser three times at Mr. Atkinson, twice unsuccessfully, but on the third time, he overrode the system, holding down the trigger for 33 seconds, more than six times the standard deployment. The officer claimed to have no recollection of placing his foot on Mr. Atkinson's head as colleagues arrived at the scene. However, he conceded he must have kicked the ex-footballer twice in the forehead because bootlace prints proved he had. Now, those bootlace prints were on the head of, of Dalian Atkinson. Really, really, really awful, really distressing. Um, Dada, I want to bring you you in on this because, I mean, you know, we're telling this story, the audience might think, well, of, of course he would get found guilty of manslaughter. This seems like such a clear-cut case. The guy's got his you know, his blood on his shoelaces, he's held a taser down for 33 seconds when it should just be five. You know, you might say, well, how's this even a story? Why is it a surprise this guy has been found guilty? Well, it turns out this is the first time in 35 years that any police officer has been found guilty of, of manslaughter. And that's not because there haven't been people who've died at the hands of police officers. So what I want to know, I suppose, from you is your analysis of, of why this time around this cop was prosecuted and found guilty when in so many other situations, that's that's not the case. Why is what happened today quite so rare? I mean, to add on to that before I get on to answering the question, I think that it's important to remember that there are many instances, um, not just in the US, but in the UK, where, you know, we literally know that a police officer, you know, it's not a thing of like, oh, they died following police custody. So, you know, there's an attempt to cover it up as like a uh, self-harm or, you know, sort of quote-unquote natural causes. You know, the killing of Jean-Charles de Menezes, a police officer killing a man in a tube station who was innocent. Now, I don't think the police should be able to kill anyone innocent or guilty of whatever, but if we'll go by those terms, then, you know, that that's what happened. And so I think that there's this sense, you know, there's this... The, the, the conviction rate and the way that this is treated tells us that the deaths of black and brown people, particularly black and brown men, is seen as part of the collateral damage or in fact in part, part, part and parcel of the system of policing in this country. That's, that's what we are told when um, instances where police officers have, un have unquestionably killed um, people who are disproportionately black and brown, who are disproportionately black and brown men, um, that, you know, that is actually not a case of wrongdoing, that that is actually in some ways, in, for some reason, justifiable. So that's sort of one, one element, but we can put that to one side. I think the reason that, you know, we have seen this in this particular case, I think, you know, as I, it sort of connects to what I was talking about in the first segment, which is we are in a sort of particular moment, right? You know, for decades, um, bereaved family members of those who have died um, following contact with the police or, you know, outright by the police, as you can, like, as has been seen in plain sight. Um, it's those bereaved family members, it's overworked activists, you know, those are the ones who've been trying for decades to get accountability. And for many years, not only has that work gone without enough resources and without enough attention, but, you know, at times it's been actively tampered with by the police themselves. You know, we know that the families of victims like Sean Rigg, like Jean-Charles de Menezes, like Stephen Lawrence, Joy Gardner, um, these families were all spied on by undercover police when they were campaigning to try and get justice for their family members. Um, and those family members, as a result, have struggled, basically, to get very meager forms of, you know, recognition and accountability that are available to them. You know, 
i.e. a guilty conviction, as we've seen here, or even just a decent investigation um, is something that a lot of these families have campaigned for and not managed to get. But, you know, then you have this sort of Black Lives Matter movement, um, which, you know, globally has created this groundswell of pressure um, that has given weight to the work that has already been, been being done by, by these families and activists. And, you know, we saw something really similar in the conviction, the momentous conviction of Derek Chauvin in the murder of George Floyd, which was undoubtedly partly uh, shaped by the huge amount of consciousness raising and pressure that had been built up in the streets. But obviously, you know, it, it shouldn't take this like it shouldn't. We can't do this for every person that we lose at the hands of the criminal justice system. Like we can't get we can't have a global movement every time we need to have, you know, recognition, accountability or justice, which are three, I think, different things in the wake of those events. And to think that even the most basic of those, you know, because I don't think that justice and I don't even really think accountability can be provided for by our existing criminal justice system, because it would involve complete overhauling of that system to ensure that no one is traumatized or tortured or killed by the state ever. And that's what, you know, real justice would look like. And real justice would be, you know, all of these people that I've mentioned being alive today. Um, but to think that even just recognition, you know, even just the idea of institutional recognition that what happened was something that shouldn't have happened and that it wasn't just business as usual and that you're not just going to have this kind of like kangaroo trial or whatever where, you know, the outcome is that no wrongdoing was found. The idea that just that takes this amount of work and energy and struggle um, is, you know, really, really tells us that whilst, you know, I'm sure that this is, this is, you know, this is a momentous occasion and it's the consequence of a lot of struggle and a lot of movement work, um, it just tells you actually, and going back to the conversation that we've just had, it just tells you that like, when you look at the holistic lives and the holistic ways in which we live together, there is no question um, that race plays a crucial factor in the harms and the the vulnerabilities that people are exposed to in our current system this ruling obviously meant a lot to the family here you saw that in the in the clip we showed but the real test will be to what extent this can you know end the culture of impunity which is why police officers feel like they can get away with this kind of stuff that, that that's why it matters well there are a number of reasons why it matters but one of the key reasons why it matters is that people do actually get found guilty of these these crimes they've done whilst serving as as police officers is because hopefully that means cops won't just assume they can get away with this kind of stuff and you know won't taser people for 33 seconds or kick them so hard in the face that they get you know blood on all over their laces as I say, incredibly distressing story. Well done to everyone who's campaigned for this result. Um, we're going to go straight on to our next story. With COP26 taking place later this year in Glasgow, Boris Johnson's government have repeatedly suggested they will place Britain at the vanguard of tackling climate change. Now, when it comes to targets, Britain is doing pretty well, we have committed to reduce emissions by 78% by 2035 compared to 1990 levels, which is one of the most ambitious targets in the world. However, when it comes to our actions, and actions are what really counts, we increasingly have no leg to stand on. It's reported in the Times that a new North Sea oil and gas field is about to be given the green light. That's right. 
We're aiming for net zero, yet we're still planning to pump ever more fossil fuels out of the ground. Make it make sense. I don't think you can. For some specific details on the project, let's go to the Times report. Um, they say... Under proposals submitted to the government, developers behind the Cambo heavy crude field off the coast of the Shetland Islands expect to extract 150 million barrels of oil, roughly equivalent to operating 16 coal power stations for a year. Setting up and powering the oil rig will emit more than 3 million tonnes of carbon over the project's lifetime. So how was this able to happen? How, when we have a government who is talking the talk when it comes to climate change, who's saying we want to reduce emissions by upwards of 70% by 2035, how is it the case that they've now gone on to approve new fields drilling for oil and gas? Well, you might think this, this shouldn't be able to happen. The government did make a deal with oil and gas, with the oil and gas industry in March. And that essentially said that in order for the government to help support the sector transition away from fossil fuels, so essentially subsidising them to change how their industry functions, all new fields licensed for development would need to prove they were compatible with the government's net zero strategy. Now, this field is obviously not compatible with the net zero strategy, but how it was able to be um, approved or how why we think it's about to be approved is because the system doesn't apply to this particular development. As the Times explains, the project will not be covered by the government's climate checkpoint because it was licensed for exploration in 2001 and 2004. So they're saying, sorry, yeah, we've said all, all new licenses will only be given out if um, they can prove that they'll be consistent with a with a net zero target. But if they were approved in 2001 or 2004, what can we do? Now, this is not how a government would behave if they believed we were really in the middle of a crisis. It's worth remembering, this project is going to run until 2050. If we launch this project, if we start um, development on this oil field, it will be running, it will be pumping oil out of the ground until 2050. Now, saying, oh, but we already approved it in 2001, I mean, that's a bit like in March, Boris Johnson stands up and say, oh, we will have social distancing and a lockdown, but only after all the festivals we've given approval to happen first, right? Sometimes when an emergency comes along, you have to change plans. And if you're serious about a problem, that's what you'll do. They don't seem to be doing that in this situation. Obviously, the company involved have tried to defend this. Um, they are called Sikar Point energy and um, they're backed by the american investment group blackstone and also by shell shall have a 30 percent stake in the company now in defense of the project jonathan roger who is chief executive of sicar said we have proactively taken significant steps to minimize the emissions footprint through its designs so they say don't worry we're going to minimize um, the footprint of this project um, and the Times have a report on what that footprint will be. So they say over the lifetime of the project, it expects to emit about 3.4 million tonnes of CO2 equivalents. Its operator argues that this is small in comparison with the 18.3 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent that were released from upstream oil and gas operations in 2018. So basically what the developers are saying, 3.5 million might sound like a lot, but it's small in comparison to the 18 million we pump out every year when it comes to the other oil and gas projects we have running in Britain and on Britain's shores. There's some obvious problems with this. So first of all, 
the whole challenge we have is we want to shrink the amount of emissions we have from every single sector. So you can't say, oh, well, this development will be small compared to the rest of the sector, because the whole point is that sector is going to have to dramatically shrink. While 3.5 million might not look like much compared to our total emissions from that sector. If we're going to have any hope in hell of tackling climate change, 3.5 million tons will be as big as the entire sector by the time we get to 2050 when this is still going to be running. The bigger deal here, though, is they're only talking about the emissions involved in the extraction of this, which is a bit of a distraction. The whole point, if we're taking climate change seriously, we have to move away from burning fossil fuels. What's the most obvious response to that need, it's to leave those fossil fuels in the ground. That's how you're going to incentivize companies and individuals to change their practices is by not flooding the market with oil and gas. And we can quickly go to the government's view. A spokesman for the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy told The Times, we are working hard to drive down demand for fossil fuels, but we also know there will continue to be ongoing demand for oil and gas over the coming years. Um, finally, it's also worth noting that before, um, well, before now, before it seems like they're about to give this, this this approval, the government had commissioned a report from the International Energy Agency. Um, so they commissioned it themselves um, in advance of the COP26 conference. And that report called for no investment in new fossil fuel supply projects. So it's another one of those situations where the government says, oh, we'll commission this independent group, which will tell us how we can tackle climate change. The moment they give them a recommendation which might go against the wishes of their friends in big business, in this case, um, big oil and big gas, then they ignore that recommendation. Dahlia, I want to go to you on this. I know you're probably going to find this very frustrating. What's your take on why the government are, I suppose, willing to I mean, this should be embarrassing, right? We're hosting COP26. They're saying we're going to be at the vanguard of tackling climate change. And in the same year, we're giving approval to new extraction projects. Boris Johnson's government is one of spectacle over substance. So, you know, that he'll sort of invest some kind of like minuscule amount into, you know, green public transport while, you know, digging for new oil, which, you know, and he'll just see it. He sees it as a PR management, a media management issue rather than actually an issue of how we actually mitigate the crisis of climate change, which is already underway. But I think one side point actually that I want to make is that the North Sea oil is actually this really massive question in British politics. It's going to become really prominent in the next few years as, you know, murmurings of Scottish independence are likely to resurface. So it's really important that on the left we have this like understanding of how we actually what we're actually proposing to do with the North Sea oil um, and, you know, how we envisage and how we can cost and understand a, you know, just transition with, you know, large-scale job creation, retraining, reskilling, safeguarding worker rights. You know, it can't just be shut it down. It has to be like, what do we do with kind of like the workers and, you know, the reliance that has been developed on these fossil fuel kind of projects. But I think this this reason as well that, you know, there's this idea of we can dig for new oil in this way and justify it by saying, well, you know, yeah, we have all these targets and we have all these ambitions, but ultimately... Um, we still need to rely on oil and gas for the next few years or like for the foreseeable future is precisely because of the logic, this logic, which is being reproduced. And it's this idea that, you know, we have time, you know, this idea that climate change is this future issue and it's an issue that we'll deal with when we get to it, you know, when it actually becomes a crisis, which, you know, spoiler alert, it already is a crisis for many people around the world. And also oftentimes that idea of managing the crisis looks like one of two things. It either means 
basically just mitigating the effects of climate change for the elite, for the very powerful, for the privileged few, um, and leaving the rest of the world to kind of fight over the struggles and the various kind of um, socio-economic and political impacts of climate change. Or it means, you know, what we've kind of seen gestured to here, science fiction, fantastical notions of quick fix technology, right? Like this kind of, oh, by that, by the time that climate change becomes a problem, which is years ago, by the way, we will have, you know, a technology that will actually just fix it all in one go without us having to change anything fundamental about our political economic system. And when I say it was gestured to in this story, it's that kind of absurd suggestion that we heard from that chief executive, which is this idea that you can somehow design an oil project to reduce its carbon footprint, which is pure absurdity. This came up a lot during Labour for Green New Deal and all of this, which is this question of net zero versus zero carbon. Now, is it true that zero carbon will require much more dramatic systemic change than net zero? Absolutely. Is it much more difficult? Absolutely. But the reason that I think a lot of activists fight for zero carbon rather than net zero is because you actually circumvent by fighting for net zero or by kind of settling on net zero, you actually find a way to circumvent bureaucratic, almost bureaucratically through a technicality rather than then meaningfully, the actual question of reducing emissions and reducing fossil fuels and you know keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Because you can just say, oh, well, we're digging this, this um, oil project, project or we're burning fossil fuels, but it's fine because we're offsetting it by either buying carbon credits from you know, the global south, which you know further entrenches global divides in development, or we're off, offsetting it through, you know, building trees or whatever in a way that can no, you cannot quantify the, the ways that you could actually meaningfully, quote unquote, offset the carbon produced by emissions by through a project like this. So this is why there was always that problem with net zero. And I understand the political problems of fighting for car zero carbon because it feels so unachievable. But the reality is that net zero basically offers a cover for fossil fuels to continue to be dug out of the ground, for fossil fuels to continue to be burned. It's just sort of the responsibility for it is just sort of shifted around through this like kind of fake economy of like credit and debit, of like carbon credit and carbon debit. But when we, if we kind of go away from that sort of fake economy and look at actually the reality of what this means in material terms, if we move through our current resources and if we move through the existing resources that are available to us in terms of fossil fuels, we will go above 1.5 degrees within a matter of decades. Like it really won't be long. And 1.5 degrees is widely considered to be the tipping point after which, you know, as I said, Climate crisis is something that is currently being experienced already. 1.5 degrees is also a particular tipping point where a series of, of extreme weather events and extreme impact on, you know, agriculture and all these different kinds of, you know, our food supply chains, et cetera, will be impacted in a way that cannot actually be curved. Like it will set off a chain of events that are unknowable in the magnitude and the scope and the scale of their effects and cannot actually be reined in in any meaningful way. Um, so that's the reality when we actually go away from this like science fiction, like mad idea that, or, you know, fake idea that like 
you can carbon credit your way out of this crisis or you can somehow design your way out of this crisis um, when it comes to, you know, designing oil projects differently. So, yes, you are right. I'm extremely frustrated. (laughs) Boris Johnson sees politics as just essentially a a media management strategy through orchestrating particular focus on what he's given take away attention from what he's taking away, which is far, which far outweighs what he is actually giving, which is basically peanuts. As ever, thank you so much. If you are a regular donor to Navarra Media, we do appreciate it so much. It's what makes all of this possible. If you are not a regular donor already, please do go to navarramedia.com slash support and donate the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. Next story. The ongoing clear-out of Keir Starmer's top team has claimed its latest victim. Starmer's political director, Jenny Chapman, has been forced from her job amid increasing disquiet from Labour MPs. Now, Chapman's departure follows that of Ben Nunn. He was director of communications and Morgan McSweeney, who was his chief of staff. So that's three of the top jobs in Lotto. So leader of the opposition's office have now gone. As to what forced Chapman out, Henry Zeffman in The Times has some well-informed analysis. He writes that after Labour's defeat last month in the Hartlepool by-election, Chapman came in for much of the blame. She was accused of choosing a Remainer candidate with a questionable social media history, opting to hold the contest on the wrong date and botching the reshuffle that followed, inflaming Starmer's relationship with Angela Rayner, his deputy. Figures in Starmer's orbit insist these criticisms are misplaced and that MPs desperate for somebody to blame for Labour's problems are looking for an easy target. Perhaps so. But the problem for Chapman was that her critics are on both the left of the party, who believe Starmer is wrong to abandon Corbynism, and the right, who fear he is not abandoning Corbynism with sufficient zeal. Chapman might have survived the chagrin of one group, but to have lost the confidence of both was unsustainable. We talked about um, some of those reasons why people thought Jenny Chapman had done a bad job holding the Hartlepool by-election on the same day as the local elections, which many people um, assessed would mean a higher Tory turnout because they had a popular Tory mayor in the region also starting that war with Angela Rayner, which absolutely backfired. Everyone watching that was like, what the hell is going on here? Obviously, political director, your job is kind of to manage relationships with MPs, with the party. That's all gone pretty goddamn wrong. So it's not really a surprise she has moved. By the way, she hasn't, she's not now unemployed. She's been made um, Brexit secretary. So she will be in the shadow cabinet. She's a lord. So she can move from being in the office to being on the front bench. As I say, the worrying part there is that they are saying some of the people pushing for her exit were to the right of her, um, who didn't think Starmer has abandoned Corbynism quick enough. Now, Jenny Chapman is not on the left of the party. She was a vice chair of progress. So this is very much a dyed-in-the-wall Labour right figure, right? But there are people in the party who want him to move further to the right and more quickly. Now, my assessment here is that this probably isn't about policy. I don't think there are many serious people who are looking at the polls and thinking, oh, if only we would absolutely rule out any tax rises, if only we would back more foreign wars, if only we would promise to you know, increase tuition fees instead of reduce them, that would sort out our electoral problems. I don't think anyone is actually stupid enough to think that that will help Labour in the polls. What I think is going on here is that there are people with cold feet on the right of the Labour Party who are thinking Keir Starmer is probably not going to last much longer. We need to 
with the utmost urgency get in people who can stitch up the party as quick as possible. So you want to get people in there, potentially from Labour first, who are saying, let's, you know, let's not faff about with with any of these niceties, policy review, whatnot. Let's just change the leadership roles. Let's just try and deselect the few left-wing MPs there are. Let's make sure that every selection in future is completely stitched up so the left can never have any influence in the party again. That's to me what I think is the most likely underlying logic that's going on here. Um, it's also, um, you might not be surprised to know, um, an analysis shared by our very own Aaron Bastani. I want to go to a tweet from him. He writes, a senior Labour source responds to Jenny Chapman being removed from Starmer's office. Starmer is now a hostage of Labour first. People should be prepared for a factional onslaught. They'll shift gears after Batley. Um, Aaron says, now more than ever, it's not about winning national elections. So that's senior sources in the Labour Party who are saying essentially that's what's going on. You have some people who weren't on the Labour left, but more from the progress wing. They've been pushed out now. MPs have had enough of them. Fixers in the party have had enough in them. And I would imagine that in some of those roles are going to be some real factional fighters who can ditch up the party as soon as possible for the right so that um, if need be, Starmer can stand down and be replaced by someone, well, I'd say even further to the right than him, but just as right wing as him. I mean, I think here is, is the, the issue is not so much who's going to be the next leader, but can you lock the left out forever? That's their priority. And I think that's how we should probably read all of these internal reshuffles. Obviously, this is happening in advance of the Batley and Spen by-election, which they seem pretty sure they're going to lose. The Daily Mail today was suggesting that the Tory campaign are saying Labour will come third. Um, they're saying the real battle is between the Tories and George Galloway. They might be trolling. Um, I wouldn't necessarily trust um, Tory campaigners on you know, who, who is Labour's real challenge when it comes to Batley and Spen. But I think that by-election is likely to go very badly. This looks like the Labour right preparing the ground to say, well, if Keir Starmer's not going to win a general election, let's make sure we've changed the rules before he falls. Let's go to our final story. The UK government is promoting a new day of appreciation for this great country. The Department of Education this week tweeted, we're encouraging schools across the UK to celebrate One Britain, One Nation Day on the 25th of June, when children can learn about our shared values of tolerance, kindness, pride and respect. Now, that's fairly, it's a very cringy title for a day for us all to celebrate. One Britain, One Nation. Lots of people pointing out they're actually four nations in Britain, or three nations in Britain, four in the United Kingdom. Anyway, the name, the cringy name, isn't the cringiest thing about this particular day. Let's take a listen to the song that Britain's school children will be encouraged to sing this Friday. Now, that video has had more than 2 million views on Twitter, mainly because of people sharing it and mocking it. I have to say, I'm personally quite annoyed about this song because 
since I heard it on Twitter last night, it's been going around in my head for basically the past 24 hours. Um, it's very catchy, whatever you might think of the politics behind it. Dahlia, would you have sung that school, that song at school if you were asked to? I remember this is, this is primary school. What do you think your reaction would have been? I just think even back then, I would have just been like, guys, this is embarrassing. And I was a very embarrassing child. So like, I think even I would have been like, guys, this is super like, maybe let's not just for just for like street credibility purposes um so yeah and i don't think you would have gotten away with it in my school which was a uh, very kind of chaotic to be honest <laughs> we talked recently about a school in in pimlico where they a new head teacher would put up a union jack they'd pulled it down and then burned it off site so they're, they're definitely <laughs> yeah, so, are, so that was a secondary that... school not a primary school but. <laughs> like that's the sentiment that's the growing consciousness that this these people are trying to address with the song. And I'm like, I will come on to it a bit later when we've sort of like listened to all of this, but basically it's like, you can't respond to people's like serious issues with being like materially excluded, socially excluded and disempowered and just try and fix that by getting them to sing a song. And it's like the more that you respond to those serious concerns with this kind of, patronizing kind of sloganeering the more you're actually fermenting the very frustration that you're trying to quell yeah I, I sympathize with that view let's look a bit more at this campaign because it's i think it's silly it's not necessarily as sinister as some people initially interpreted it as so lots of people saying this is like the hitler youth etc uh, it's not organized by ethno nationalists so one britain one nation day is organized by a bradford-based group of the same name the website describes the purpose of one britain one nation as the following one Britain, one nation brings us together, not to focus on our differences, but to celebrate the values we share. Tolerance, kindness, pride, respect, and a tremendous desire to help others. Today's Britain boasts a wonderful array of cultures. It is our multicultural identity that makes Britain so unique. Our diverse cultures are inextricably linked by the sole fact that we are British. It is this fact that has prompted Obon, um, so One Britain, One Nation, to reinforce and revive what collectively unites us. Obon aims to give a new impetus for the creation of a harmonised society to make Britain an international model of moral rectitude. Um, so they're putting forward an inclusive nationalism there. Again, even if, if I personally find it a little bit cringe. Um, the organisation was started in Bradford, as I say. Its founder is Cash Singh. Um, you can see an image of him there. That's from their website. Cash Singh is a former senior police officer and founder of the British Indian Association. Now that you've seen sort of what it's about, the video, I mean, it's clearly not a white power thing. They're, they're, they're trying to put forward a very ethnically inclusive vision of Britain. It's all about how multiculturalism is fantastic. As you saw in that video, I mean, that wasn't loads of white kids singing. This is kind of a local project coming out of Bradford. Do you think Twitter has been a bit too harsh about it? I mean, absolutely not, because as I've said, <laughs> whether you're not whether this nationalism is ethnic or civic or whatever, the point is, is it's embarrassing. And that's the key <laughs> point here. <laughs> but you know, Paul Gilroy wrote There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack in 1987, yet people are still flogging this dead horse in 2021. But the problem here, and this is again what I'm and I'm this is related to two things here. The problem here is that, you know. This idea of what of you know what unites us 
is, you know, it's a set of racially neutral values. Um, but the problem is that, you know, these values that are supposed to unite us, moral rectitude, which, okay, I don't think any of the primary school kids that are sing being made to sing this song know what that means. But the problem is that those values are repeatedly violated by the British government itself, contemporarily and historically. So it's like, that's why it doesn't, it comes off as clownish. But also because the divisions, especially if we're going to talk about this in terms of like racial or ethnic divisions, like those divisions are not things that exist just because racialized, you know, ethnic minorities are just belligerent and like refuse to see themselves as part of the country, even though that is, you know, kind of a very common and sort of well-trodden trope is because they are literally materially, spatially, socially pushed out of the very things that they help to contribute to create. So just trying to kind of like address those divisions with a song suggests that, you know, you think that the problem exists in the mentality of ethnic minorities um, rather than in the system that you've created, which has created like two tiered systems, particularly for working class people, particularly for working class people of color. But I also think that, you know, this is a it's a response to kind of um, and this kind of whole flag waving na nationalism kind of thing. And this idea that, you know, we can kind of like redeem, we can re recuperate nationalism from its racialized implications and just make it into this like race neutral set of values. Um, it's also kind of a, or like this generally neutral set of values that anyone can ascribe to. It's also a response, I think, to the fact that the union in that union jack is falling apart, right? Like devolution, you know, Irish republicanism, Scottish and Welsh independence, you know, these, these forms of politics are far more popular than they have been in a very long time. They're also popular simultaneously. Um, which is also quite unique. You know, you don't have a situation where there's sort of like fervor around one form of independence or nationalism um, and not around others. But also there isn't a clear path for the establishment to really move through that and to kind of roll that trend back. And we saw it um, not so long ago when that legislation was passed to um, which mandated the Union Jack be flown in at all government buildings all the time. But like the flag initiative, these kinds of initiatives are actually going to do more harm than good because it feels like when you're trying to push this top-down notion of unity at a time when people are divided by very real material things, um, it kind of it doesn't take seriously people's concerns about how they aren't being represented in their political process and they aren't being represented and included in ideas of what normative Britishness is. And I'd also mention here that if what you're trying to do is like, and this isn't what related to this particular song, it's related to kind of the overall kind of investment in pageantry, in national pageantry that is, you know, happening from the government outwards. When you're trying to kind of manage those multiple growing sentiments um, of national independence and to give people a sense of, you know, you don't need to become independent because, you know, or you don't need to feel um, like you need to kind of like, or that you need to um, sort of, decolonize ideas of you know what Britain is or rather highlight the coloniality of what Britain is because you know you have enough autonomous power and you can just be part of this you know nation where we're all stronger together then maybe don't make people sing a song about being one nation when it actually isn't one nation it's like several nations that are trying to exist together and also when people look around them and see a nation that is 
materially divided along very serious lines. So I think that ultimately, you know, this is sort of the more clownish end of a much broader initiative to deal with division, not through substantive systemic change and through universal access to the services and things that people actually need, but actually just kind of over-investing in pageantry um, and also making the people who are experiencing the very brunt of that inequality be made to feel like the cause of the division in itself. I've got a, uh, a tweet um, that's also disagreeing with my kind of relaxed attitude towards this song. It's Edward Clark. Disagree with Michael Walker on Tisky Sour. Obonde is not just cringe. It is overtly fascist and sinister. I grew up in an authoritarian state that did exactly this sort of thing in the schools. Um, I think that's a point that should be taken very seriously. I'd probably counter... I mean, I do I do think they do this kind of thing in quite a lot of countries. I mean, France, they have France Day, don't they? I think the Americans do this as well. As I say, I don't think it solves any, you know, social problems. I think this is often being put forward to say, oh, we've got a, a communi- communities that are too divided. We need to talk about Britain more. Well, France, they talk about France all the goddamn time. They still have very divided communities. So I think things like council housing that's in the middle of cities, not on the outskirts, it's decent quality, we're not ripping communities apart by gentrification. That's all going to be much more important to having communities that live together in harmony than singing these songs about flags and whatever. Dahlia, it's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you this Wednesday evening. It's been lovely seeing you, Michael. Thank you for watching Tisky Sour tonight. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.